Chapter 1, Part 1 of How to Write Short Stories with Examples by Ringlardner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kurt from Tucson, Arizona. Chapter 1, The Facts. Part 1. A Sample Story of Life in the Kentucky Mountains An English girl leaves her husband, an Omaha policeman, but neglects to obtain a divorce. She later meets the man she loves, a garbage inspector from Bordeaux, and goes with him without benefit of clergy. This story was written on top of a Fifth Avenue bus, and some of the sheets blew away, which may account for the apparent scarcity of interesting situations. 1. The engagement was broken off before it was announced, so only a thousand or so of the intimate friends and relatives of the parties knew anything about it. What they knew was that there had been an engagement, and that there was one no longer. The cause of the breach they merely guessed, and most of the guesses were, in most particulars, wrong. Each intimate and relative had a fragment of the truth. It remained for me to piece the fragments together. It was a difficult job, but I did it. Part of my evidence is hearsay. The major portion is fully corroborated, and not one of my witnesses had anything to gain through perjury. So I am positive that I have at my tongue's end the facts, and I believe that in justice to everybody concerned, I should make them public. Ellen MacDonald had lived on the north side of Chicago for 21 years. Billy Bowen had been a south sider for seven years longer, but neither knew of the other's existence until they met in New York, the night before the Army-Navy game. Billy, sitting with a business acquaintance at a neighboring table, Antonio's, was spotted by a male member of Ellen's party, a Chicagoan, too. He was urged to come on over. He did, and was introduced. The business acquaintance was also urged, came, was introduced, and forgotten forgotten, that is, by everyone but the waiter who observed that he danced not nor told stories, and figured that his function must be to pay. The business acquaintance had been Billy's guest. Now he became host and without seeking the office. It was not that Billy and Miss MacDonald's male friends were niggards, but unfortunately for the B.A., the checks always happened to arrive when everybody else was dancing or so hysterical over Billy's repartee as to be potentially insolvent. Billy was somewhere between his 14th and 21st highball. In other words, at his best, from the audience's standpoint. His dialogue was simply screaming and his dancing just heavenly. He was Frank Tinney doubling as Vernon Castle. On the floor he tried and accomplished twinkles that would have spelled catastrophe if attempted under the 14 mark or over the 21. And he said the cutest things, 
one right after the other. Two. You can be charmed by a man's dancing, but you can't fall in love with his funniness. If you're going to fall in love with him at all, you'll do it when you catch him in a serious mood. Miss MacDonald caught Billy Bowen and won at the game the next day. Entirely by accident or a decree of fate, her party and his sat in adjoining boxes. Not by accident, Miss MacDonald sat in the chair that was nearest Billy's. She sat there first to be amused. She stayed to be conquered. Here was a different Billy from the Billy of Tonio's. Here was a Billy who trained his gun on your heart and let your risibles alone. Here was a dreamy Billy, a Billy of romance. How calm he remained through the excitement. How indifferent to the thrills of the game. There was depth to him. He was a man. Her escort and the others round her were children, screaming with delight at the puerile deeds of pseudo-heroes. Football was a great sport, but a sport. It wasn't life. Would the world be better or worse for that nine-yard gain that Elephant or Oliphant or whatever his name was had just made? She knew it wouldn't. Billy knew, too, for Billy was deep. He was thinking man's thoughts. She could tell by his silence, by his inattention to the scene before him. She scarcely could believe that here was the same person who last night had kept his own yes and the neighboring tables roaring with laughter. What a complex character his. In sooth, Mr. Bowen was thinking man's thoughts. He was thinking that if this pretty Miss McDowell or Donnelly were elsewhere, he could go to sleep. And that if he could remember which team he had bet on and could tell which team was which, he would have a better idea of whether he was likely to win or lose. When, after the game they parted, Billy rallied to the extent of asking permission to call. Ellen, it seemed, would be very glad to have him. But she couldn't tell exactly when she would have to be back in Chicago. She still had three more places to visit in the East. Could she possibly let him know when she did get back? Yes, she could and would. If he really wanted her to, she would drop him a note. He certainly wanted her to. This, thought Billy, was the best possible arrangement. Her note would tell him her name and address and save him the trouble of phoning to all the McConnells, McDowells, and Donnellys on the north side. He did want to see her again. She was pretty, and judging from last night, full of pep. And she had fallen for him. He knew it from that look. He watched her until she was lost in the crowd. Then he hunted round for his pals in the car that had brought them up. At length he gave up the search and wearily climbed the elevated stairs. His hotel was on Broadway, near 44th. He left the train at 42nd, the third time it stopped there. "'I guess you've rode far enough,' said the guard. Fifteen cents worth for a nickel. I guess we ought to have a pullman on these here trains.' "'I guess,' said Billy. "'I guess.' 
but the repartee well was dry. He stumbled downstairs and hurried toward Broadway to replenish it. 3. Ellen MacDonald's three more places to visit in the East must have been deadly dull. Anyway, on the 6th of December, scarcely more than a week after his parting with her in New York, Billy Bowen received the promised note. It informed him merely that her name was Ellen MacDonald, that she lived at so-and-so Walton Place, and that she was back in Chicago. That day, if you'll remember, was Monday. Miss MacDonald's parents had tickets for the opera, but Ellen was honestly just worn out. And would they be mad at her if she stayed home and went to bed? They wouldn't. They would take Aunt Mary in her place. On Tuesday morning, Paul Potter called up and wanted to know if she would go with him that night to the Follies. She was horribly sorry, but she'd made an engagement. The engagement evidently was to study, and the subject was harmony, with Berlin, Kern, and Van Alstyne as instructors. She sat on the piano bench from half-past seven till quarter after nine, and then went to her room vowing that she would accept any and all invitations for the following evening. Fortunately, no invitations arrived, for at quarter of nine Wednesday night, Mr. Bowen did, and in a brand new mood. He was a bit shy and listened more than he talked. But when he talked, he talked well, though the sparkling wit of the night at Tonio's was lacking. Lacking, too, was the preoccupied air of the day at the football game. There was no problem to keep his mind busy. But even if the Army and Navy had been playing football in this very room, he could have told at a glance which was which. Vision and brain were perfectly clear, and he had been getting his old eight hours. And, like the railroad hen, sometimes nine and sometimes ten, every night since his arrival home from Gotham, New York, Mr. Bowen was on the wagon. They talked of the east of Tonio's of the game. This was where Billy did most of his listening. Of the war, of theaters, of books, of college, of automobiles, of the market. They talked, too, of their immediate families. Billy's consisting of one married sister in South Bend was soon exhausted. He had two cousins here in town whom he saw frequently, two cousins and their wives, but they were people who simply couldn't stay home nights. As for himself, he preferred his rooms and a good book to the so-called gay life. Ellen should think that a man who danced so well would want to be doing it all the time. It was nice of her to say that he danced well. But really, he didn't, you know. Oh, yes, he did. She guessed she could tell. Well, anyway, the giddy world made no appeal to him unless, of course, he was in particularly charming company. His avowed love for home and quiet surprised Ellen a little. It surprised Mr. Bowen a great deal. Only last night he remembered he had been driven almost desperate by that quiet of which he was now so fond. He had been on the point of busting loose, but had checked himself in time. He had played Canfield till ten, though the bookshelves were groaning with their load. Ellen's family kept them busy for an hour and a half. It was a dear family, and she wished he could meet it. 
Mother and father were out playing bridge somewhere tonight. Aunt Mary had gone to bed. Aunts Louise and Harriet lived in the next block. Sisters Edith and Wilma would be home from Northampton for the holidays about the 20th. Brother Bob and his wife had built the cutest house in Evanston. Her younger brother Walter was a case. He was away tonight, had gone out right after dinner. He'd better be in before mother and father came. He had a new love affair every week and 16 years old last August. Mother and father really didn't care how many girls he was interested in so long as they kept him too busy to run round with those crazy schoolmates of his. The latter were older than he, just at the age when it seemed smart to drink beer and play cards for money. Father said that if he ever found out that Walter was doing these things, he'd take him out of school and lock him up somewhere. Aunts Louise and Mary and Harriet did a lot of settlement work. They met all sorts of queer people, people you'd never believe existed. The three aunts were unmarried. Brother Bob's wife was dear, but absolutely without a sense of humor. Bob was full of fun, but they got along just beautifully together. You never saw a couple so much in love. Edith was on the basketball team at college and terribly popular. Wilma was horribly clever and everybody said she'd make Phi Beta Kappa. Ellen, so she averred, had been just nothing in school. Not bright, not athletic, and of course not popular. Of course not, said Billy, smiling. Honestly, fibbed Ellen. You never could make me believe it, said Billy. Whereat Ellen blushed and Billy's unbelief strengthened. At this crisis, the case burst into the room with his hat on. He removed it at sight of the collar and awkwardly advanced to be introduced. I'm going to bed, he announced after the formality. I hoped, said Ellen, you tell us about the latest. Who is it now? Beth? Beth nothing, scoffed the case. We split up the day of the Kiwatin game. "'What was the matter?' asked his sister. "'I'm going to bed,' said the case. "'It's pretty near midnight.' "'By George, it is!' exclaimed Billy. "'I didn't dream it was that late.' "'No,' said Walter. "'That's what I tell Dad. "'The clock goes along some when you're having a good time.' "'Billy and Ellen looked shyly at each other and then laughed. "'Laughed harder, it seemed, to Walter than the joke warranted.' In fact, he hadn't thought of it as a joke. If it was that good, he'd spring it on Catherine tomorrow night. It would just about clinch her. The case, carrying out his repeated threat, went to bed and dreamed of Catherine. Fifteen minutes later, Ellen retired to dream of Billy. And an hour later than that, Billy was dreaming of Ellen, who had become suddenly popular with him, even if she hadn't been so at Northampton, which he didn't believe. Four. They saw the Follies Friday night. A criticism of the show by either would have been the greatest folly of all. It is doubtful that they could have told what theater they'd been to ten minutes after they'd left it. From wherever it was, they walked to a dancing place and danced. Ellen was so far gone that she failed to note the change in Billy's trotting. 
Foxes would have blushed for shame at its awkwardness and lack of variety. If Billy was a splendid dancer, he certainly did not prove it this night. All he knew or cared to know was that he was with the girl he wanted, and she knew only that she was with Billy and happy. On the drive home, the usual superfluous words were spoken. They were repeated inside the storm door at Ellen's father's house, while the taxi driver, waiting, wondered audibly why them suckers of explorers beat it to the pole to freeze when the north side was so damn handy. Ellen's father was out of town. So in the morning she broke the news to Mother and Aunt Mary and then sat down and wrote it to Edith and Wilma. Next she called up Bob's wife in Evanston, and after that she hurried on to the next block and sprang it on Aunts Louise and Harriet. It was decided that Walter had better not be told. He didn't know how to keep a secret. Walter, therefore, was in ignorance till he got home from school. The only person he confided in the same evening was Catherine, who was the only person he saw. Bob and his wife and Aunts Louise and Harriet came to Sunday dinner, but were chased home early in the afternoon. Mr. MacDonald was back, and Billy was coming to talk to him. It would embarrass Billy to death to find such a crowd in the house. They'd all meet him soon, never fear, and when they met him, they'd be crazy about him. Bob and Aunt Mary and Mother would like him because he was so bright and said such screaming things, and the rest would like him because he was so well-read and sensible and so horribly good-looking. Billy, I said, was coming to talk to Mr. MacDonald. When he came, he did very little of the talking. He stated the purpose of his visit, told what business he was in, and affirmed his ability to support a wife. Then he assumed the role of audience, while Ellen's father delivered an hour's lecture. The speaker did not express his opinion of Tyrus Cobb or the Kaiser, but they were the only subjects he overlooked. Sobriety and industry were words frequently used. I don't care, he prevaricated in conclusion, how much money a man is making if he is sober and industrious. You attended college, and I presume you did all the fool things college boys do. Some men recover from their college education, and others don't. I hope you are one of the former. The Sunday night supper, just cold scraps, you might say, was partaken of by the happy but embarrassed pair, the trying-to-look-happy but unembarrassed parents, and Aunt Mary. Walter, the case, was out. He had stayed home the previous evening. He'll be here tomorrow night and the rest of the week, or I'll know the reason why, said Mr. MacDonald. He won't, and I'll tell you the reason why, said Ellen. He's a real boy, Sam, put in the real boy's mother. You can't expect him to stay home every minute. I can't expect anything of him, said the father. You and the girls and Mary here have let him have his own way so long that he's past managing. When I was his age, I was in my bed at nine o'clock. Morning or night? asked Ellen. Her father scowled. It was evident he could not take a joke, not even a good one. After the cold scraps had been ruined, Mr. MacDonald drew Billy into the smoking room and offered him a cigar. The prospective son-in-law was about to refuse and express a preference for cigarettes, 
when something told him not to. A moment later, he was deeply grateful to the something. I smoke three cigars a day, said the oracle, one after each meal. That amount of smoking will hurt nobody. More than that is too much. I used to smoke to excess. Four or five cigars per day and maybe a pipe or two. I found it was affecting my health, and I cut down. Thank heaven no one in my family ever got the cigarette habit. Disease, rather. How any sane, clean-minded man can start on those things is beyond me. Me too, agreed Billy, taking the proffered cigar with one hand and making sure with the other that his silver pill case was as deep down in his pocket as it would go. Cigarettes, gambling, and drinking go hand in hand, continued the man of the house. I couldn't trust a cigarette fiend with a nickel. There are only two or three kinds he could get for that, said Billy. What say, demanded Mr. MacDonald, but before Billy was obliged to wriggle out of it, Aunt Mary came in and reminded her brother-in-law that it was nearly church time. Mr. MacDonald and Aunt Mary went to church. Mrs. MacDonald, pleading weariness, stayed home with the children. She wanted a chance to get acquainted with this pleasant-faced boy who was going to rob her of one of her five dearest treasures. The three were no sooner settled in front of the fireplace than Ellen adroitly brought up the subject of auction bridge, knowing that it would relieve Billy of the conversational burden. "'Mother is really quite a shark, aren't you, mother?' she said. "'I don't fancy being called a fish,' said the mother. "'She's written two books on it, and she and father have won so many prizes that they may have to lease a warehouse. If they'd only play for money,' Just think of how rich we'd all be. The game is fascinating enough without adding to it the excitements and evils of gambling, said Mrs. MacDonald. It is a fascinating game, agreed Billy. It is, said Mrs. MacDonald, and away she went. Before Father and Aunt Mary got home from church, Mr. Bowen was a strong disciple of conservativeness and bidding, and thoroughly convinced that all the rules that had been taught were dead wrong. He saw the shark's point so quickly and agreed so wholeheartedly with her arguments that he impressed her as one of the most intelligent young men she had ever talked to. It was too bad it was Sunday night, but some evening soon he must come over for a game. I'd like awfully well to read your books, said Billy. The first one's usefulness died with the changes in the rules, replied Mrs. MacDonald. "'But I think I have one of the new ones in the house, "'and I'll be glad to have you take it. "'Oh, I don't like to have you give me your only copy. "'Oh, I believe we have two. "'She knew perfectly well she had two dozen. "'Aunt Mary announced that Walter had been seen in church with Catherine. "'He had made it his business to be seen. "'He and the lady had come early "'and had maneuvered into the third row from the back "'on the aisle leading to the MacDonald family pew.' He had nudged his aunt as she passed on the way to her seat, and she had turned and spoken to him. She could not know that he and Catherine had ducked before the end of the processional. After reporting favorably on the case, Aunt Mary launched into a description of the service. About seventy had turned out. The music had been good, but not quite as good as in the morning. Mr. Pratt had sung, Fear ye not, O Israel, for the offertory. Dr. Gish was still sick, and a lay reader had served. 
She had heard from Allie French that Dr. Gish expected to be out by the middle of the week and certainly would be able to preach next Sunday morning. The church had been cold at first, but very comfortable finally. Ellen rose and said she and Billy would go out in the kitchen and make some fudge. I was afraid Aunt Mary would bore you to death, she told Billy, when they had kissed for the first time since five o'clock. She just lives for the church and can talk on no other subject. I wouldn't hold that against her, said Billy charitably. The fudge was a failure, as it was bound to be. But the case, who came in just as it was being passed around, was the only one rude enough to say so. Is this a new stunt, he inquired, when he had tested it? Is what a new stunt, asked Alan, using cheese instead of chocolate? That will do, Walter, said his father. You can go to bed. Walter got up and started for the hall. At the threshold, he stopped. I don't suppose there'll be any of that fudge left, he said. But if there should be, you'd better put it in the mouse trap. Billy called a taxi and departed soon after Walter's exit. When he got out at his south side abode, the floor of the tonneau was littered with recent cigarettes. And that night he dreamed that he was president of the Anti-Cigarette League, that Dr. Gish was vice president, and that the motto of the organization was... No Trump. Billy Bowen's business took him out of town the second week in December, and it was not until the 20th that he returned. He had been east and had ridden home from Buffalo on the same train with Wilma and Edith MacDonald. But he didn't, didn't know it, and neither did they. They could not be expected to recognize him from Ellen's description. That he was horribly good-looking. The dining car conductor was all of that. Ellen had further written them that he, not the dining car conductor, was a man of many moods, that sometimes he was just nice and deep, and sometimes he was screamingly funny, and sometimes so serious and silent that she was almost afraid of him. They were wild to see him, and the journey through Ohio and Indiana would not have been half so long in his company. Edith, the athletic, would have reveled in his wit, Wilma would gleefully have fathomed his depths. They would both have been proud to flaunt his looks before the hundreds of their kind aboard the train. Their loss was greater than Billy's, for he, smoking cigarettes as fast as he could light them and playing bridge that would have brought tears of compassion to the shark's eyes, enjoyed the trip every minute of it. Ellen and her father were at the station to meet the girls, his arrival on the train had not been heralded, and it added greatly to the hysterics of the occasion. Wilma and Edith upbraided him for not knowing by instinct who they were. He accused them of recognizing him and purposely avoiding him. Much more of it was pulled in the same light vein, pro and con. He was permitted at length to depart for his office. On the way, he congratulated himself on the improbability of his ever being obliged to play basketball versus Edith. She must be a whiz in condition. Chances were she'd trained down to a hundred and ninety-five before the big games. The other one, Wilma, was a splinter if he ever saw one. You had to keep your eyes peeled or you'd miss her entirely. But suppose you did miss her. What then?
If she won her Phi Beta Kappa pin, he thought it would make her a dandy belt. These two, he thought, were a misdeal. They should be reshuffled and cut near the middle of the deck. End of chapter one. The Facts. Part one.